Religion has profoundly influenced the sweeping American narrative, perhaps more than any other force in our history, from the time before European colonization to the present. The Startup National Museum of American Religion is working to build a museum in the nation's capital that will share the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, inviting all to explore the role of religion in shaping the social, political, economic, and cultural lives of Americans, and thus America itself. I'm your host, Chris Stevenson. Join me for our 12-part podcast series, Religion and the American Experience, as we follow scholars deep into America's religious history and learn how it can inform and animate us as citizens, grappling with the complex questions of governance and American purpose in the 21st century. Episodes will be released every Monday between now and the end of the year on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. A few months ago, I saw the title of a new book about missionaries who spied for the United States during World War II and knew we had to do a podcast episode about it. Religion's influence on American foreign policy is an important and fascinating one, and this is a relatively unknown story that is just coming to light. It may have also caught my attention because I was a missionary in northern Germany in 1989 and 90 and spent time in Berlin both before and after the Berlin Wall fell. We are honored to have Dr. Matthew Sutton with us today to talk about his book, Double Crossed, The Missionaries Who Spied for the United States During the Second World War. Dr. Sutton is the Barry Family Distinguished Professor in the Liberal Arts in the Department of History at Washington State University. He teaches courses in 20th century United States history, cultural history, and religious history. Dr. Sutton received his Ph.D. from the University of California, Santa Barbara, in 2005, and is the author of several books, including American Apocalypse, A History of Modern Evangelism, Faith in the New Millennium, The Future of American Religion and Politics, and Amy Semple McPherson and the Resurrection of Christian America. Also, as with each episode in our podcast series, Religion and the American Experience, we hope listeners come away with a better comprehension of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, and thus more fully value the necessity of this idea of religious freedom as a governing principle to America, to fulfilling her purposes in the world. Thank you, Matt, for being with us today. Your book no caught your book caught me by surprise, and it expands my understanding of religion's role in U.S. foreign policy. Great. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. It was a real fun project to do. Sure, I bet it was. Before we dig into the details, uh, how did you come up with this book? <laughs> That's um, I've been asked that before, and I've tried to think back. It, it just sort of evolved. Um, my book, American Apocalypse, focused on fundamentalists, and I knew about John Birch at that point, who was the missionary who becomes the inspiration for the John Birch Society, although he was long dead when that was formed. But but what I had known was that there was this relationship between missionaries and spycraft. Um, so I initially began thinking about doing a book on the CIA and missionaries, but so much CIA material is still classified um, that it's, it's really hard to get at, especially operational stuff. But I realized with World War II, there was a lot more, a lot more materials were available and the precursor to the CIA, the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, their papers, um, many of their documents had just recently been declassified. And so there was just a kind of a treasure trove of material to start sorting through there. Right. So in the field of American religious history, is it generally known that, uh, that uh, 
government agencies used religion, religious organizations to do their work? Yeah, no. I mean, it, it is in the sense that we think of missionaries working with the State Department because they get missionaries in and out of places, um, keep them out of danger, and often have to intervene if missionaries get into trouble, um, but not with spies. I and mean, I think this was something that was pretty, well, because the U.S. didn't have a, a real professional foreign spy apparatus until World War II. And so the the use of missionaries was really just kind of a pragmatic, last minute kind of decision they made because they, they needed to staff this new agency. Right. So uh, before we get into some of the details, can you explain the title and why you chose it? <laughs> yeah, so Double Cross, the missionaries who spied for the United States during the Second World War. Um, the Double Cross is really just a, you know, has a double meaning that they're uh, well, you know, the idea of spycraft is deception and double-crossing people and misleading people. And so there's right. that part of the book. But then the idea of, of being under the power of the cross, Jesus's cross, because most of the most of the characters I focus on are um, Protestants or Catholics, but there's, there are also a few Jews and Muslims in there as well. But but the idea was just kind of playing with the idea of double-crossed. Right. Yeah, it's a great, great title. Uh, thank you for that background information. So in the introduction, you write that the four featured missionaries turned spies show us how World War II became for some Americans as much a crusade for expanding American power in the name of religious liberty as a way to avenge Pearl Harbor. I had not personally thought of this nor read much about this motivation to fight in World War II. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, so it really has to do with kind of the question of motivation. Like, why were these missionaries willing to spy for the United States, to sort of put aside, in some cases, put aside their missionary work. In some cases, they were able to do both at the same time. And the reason was really not just kind of generic patriotism that many Americans felt after Pearl Harbor, or the sense that, you know, they need to, to fight for their country. But there was a there was that, but then there was a secondary issue for them, um, or it was probably for them, it was primary, which is that Americans had, American missionaries, American churches, had invested about a hundred years of work in China, building um, a Christian movement, building churches, setting up Christian schools, trying to evangelize. And so the fear was that if Japan conquers China, then all of those years of missionary work are going to be for nil, that, that they're going to lose everything they've accomplished. And similarly in Europe, um, there was real concern that the more power that Hitler amassed, the more territory he conquered, um, the less freedom there would be for religion, especially for Protestant Christianity as Americans thought of it. And so they were really reluctant as well to see him take power just again for their own pragmatic missionary purposes. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Now you also describe, so you describe the Office of Strategic Services or OSS, which is the precursor to what we now know as the CIA formed after World War II, uh, at the beginning of World War II, fielding requests from mission boards for help in getting visas and transportation for their missionaries to go back into the mission field, right as World War II is starting. And you write, quote, In return for OSS support, the missionaries agreed to serve two masters, the church and the U.S. government, close quote. Can you describe how this came about and what it turned into? Yeah, so... Again, the State Department's always involved with missionary um, travels abroad, but because of the war, the U.S. had really restricted Americans' freedom to travel, 
in that it was both and also inability or it restricted their ability to get supplies sort of to their missionary hospitals or missionary schools in places like the Middle East or in Europe or um, Southeast Asia. And so, you know, the, the go-to agency would have been the State Department. But what word quickly spread was that the OSS was actually willing to kind of intervene and help navigate the State Department's restrictions on behalf of missionaries. And so basically the State Department was saying, we really can't help you right now. Everything, all transportation is being geared towards the war. We're not going to, we're not going to put American missionaries on ships. We're going to need, we need soldiers on those ships or sailors. And, um, and so that's where the leaders of the OSS people, especially Alan Dulles, who would go on to be the director of the CIA in the 1950s, but Dulles, who um, had been very involved in church life, he saw an opportunity here that that if they helped the missionaries, then they could sort of ask the missionaries for favors. And so that's how the, the partnership really began. So it was, it was almost accidental, accidental in some ways. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a coordinated, thought-out recruitment strategy by the OSS. It was the organization was formed um, just a few months before Pearl Harbor, and then they needed to fill it as quickly as they could. And at that point, the U.S. had already been gearing towards war long enough that most language experts had already been scooped up by the Army or by others, by the State Department. Um, you know, so they, they really had to look at the private sector. And so they looked at business leaders, they looked at flight attendants, but they also looked at missionaries. Right. So as the OSS was looking for missionaries to act as spies, Stephen Penrose, uh, one of the people that you um, feature, uh, said this, we need religious workers who understand that the world was a fallen place and that compromises were sometimes required. Can you tell us more about the dilemmas faced by these religious workers being asked to spy for the United States? Yeah, absolutely. And they all dealt with it differently. Um, and that was one of the fun things I found in, in diving into these guys' lives um, was that, you know, some of them felt like they couldn't be deceptive at all. And so they, they just essentially wouldn't work for the government or at least for the OSS. Some of them believed that they could deceive essentially by just withholding information, like they wouldn't outright lie but they could, you know, not volunteer information. And then some of them were willing, were much more pragmatic. They were the realists in the group who were willing to do what they, they considered evil. I mean, they said it was evil, but that good may prevail. And so those were especially the folks who were willing to take other lives um, to kill, uh, you know, on behalf of the United States. And, and none of them thought that it was necessarily the right thing to do. They just thought it was the necessary thing to do and that they would be forgiven for, for taking these actions. So before we get into some of the stories of these different individuals, can you share with us really brief biographical sketches of the four main uh, uh, spies who uh, you know were religious workers? Yes, yeah, and we could also probably talk about why why I chose these four. But um, but Stephen Penrose, who you just mentioned, he was um, he had spent some time in Cairo in the 1920s as a missionary educator. Um, he came back to the United States, went on and got his PhD, and then went to work for the Near East College Association, which was this umbrella agency based in New York that oversaw the American University in Beirut, the American University in Cairo, Roberts College in Turkey, and a couple of other small Christian missionary universities. And so he was essentially the conduit between domestic churches in the U.S. and this foreign, these foreign schools that were run by American missionary boards. 
Uh, so he was one and he was actually, he grew up near me. And so I was able to um, get down to his family's papers and stuff, which are down at um, Whitman college about 45 minutes from here. So that was more convenient. Um, my favorite character in the book was a guy named William Eddy. Um, he had been a Marine in world war one, um, done some intelligence work. And then in the 1920s, he went over to the American University in Beirut. And actually, I should have mentioned, he grew up at the American University of Beirut as well, that he was there until he was 15. And so he didn't step foot on the on American soil until he was 15 years old. But um, as, as a you know young adult, came back to the U.S. for school, joined the Marines, served. And then um, because his parents and his grandparents were missionaries, that was really in his blood. And so then he went over to the Middle East as well to serve as a missionary. Right. Um, and then came back in the 30s and got into academia, but was very involved in trying to kind of find practical applications for people to do missions work through their regular jobs, their regular vocations. And then when it looked like the U.S. was going to enter World War II, he volunteered to return to, to service um, as an intelligence officer for the Navy. And then he was recruited for the OSS. The third guy um, who was the, the one people know the least about is a guy named Stuart Herman. He was also a student. Um, he aspired to be a pastor. He took a fellowship, <coughs> excuse me, took a fellowship to study in um, Germany in 1935, or actually 34, goes over to Germany. And then in 1935 is invited to become the pastor of the American church in Berlin. And so he spends 1935 into early 1942 um, as the pastor of the American church. And so that puts him right at the ground level um, as everything is unfolding in Nazi Germany. And then the fourth one is John Birch, who I mentioned earlier. He was a missionary to China. He went over in 1940. Um, he was a Baptist, a fundamentalist, and went over to just serve as a missionary. But because of the expanding war, access to his mission missionary agency was cut off. Um, money was cut off. And so he ended up volunteering for the U.S. Army, basically just showed up at an army outpost um, and, and offered his services. And then he spent the rest of the war doing army intelligence and then moving over to OSS intelligence. But he maintained his position as a missionary the whole time as well. He would continue to preach and, and minister, especially on the weekends. I did notice that. He did a lot of super active missionary work as he was doing his uh, intelligence services over there in China. Yeah, for him, he could do both at the same time. And, and his right. um, supervising officers understood and supported this. They felt yep. like if he was happy, that was good for them. Yep, I saw that. Uh, Matt, William Eddy, your favorite character, I guess, was sent to Tangier, Morocco, to help prepare the way for the Allied North African invasion in 1942, Operation Torch. And one of his tasks was to create a leaflet that would be dropped from Allied bombers in conjunction with the invasion and this is how it read, at least part of it. Behold, we American holy warriors have arrived. We have come here to fight the great jihad of freedom. We have come to set you free. We are not as some other Christian invaders whom you have known and who trample under your feet. Our soldiers have been told about your country and about their Muslim brothers, and they will treat you with respect and with a friendly spirit in the eyes of God. They are holy warriors happy in their holy work. Can you tell us what this represents in the framework of what Eddie did? Yeah, I love that document. Um, so because he spoke Arabic and French and because he had spent so much of his earlier life in Cairo and also um, in some other spots in the Middle East and North Africa, 
and he was essentially the point man on the ground for the OSS preparing the way for the invasion. And one of his major jobs was to ally with the local Arab tribes or the local Muslim tribes, um, North African groups to try to make sure that when the US and the British invaded, that they would support the allied invasion rather than try to repel the allies. And this was a difficult position because um, they were anti-colonial and they were tired of Europeans trying to control North Africa. And so Eddie was the guy who had to essentially work the deal, try to cut the compromises and try to figure out a way to get um, these Muslim tribal groups on board with the allies. And, and he was able to pull it off. And again, all the while he was doing this, um, he was continuing to kind of wrestle with and, and made clear how he was wrestling with his own um, conscience because he knew in some ways he was lying to his partners that that ultimately, you know, this was not going to be a, a liberation movement, that they were not going to necessarily overthrow the European colonizers. Um, so at times he would lie to them and, and that tore him up. He didn't like doing it, but he did it. And I want to jump over to John Birch and his exploits in China. Can you share where he was and what he was doing when he got the job with the army and then what he did during the war in China? Yeah, so he was um, in the eastern part of China, kind of the southeast, and he, he moved around a lot. But essentially, he was just doing evangelism, um, trying to make converts. He, um, as I mentioned, grew up as a fundamentalist. And so he was part of this kind of ragtag effort Um went to China without very many language skills, without much money, and just kind of immersed himself in the culture. But the benefit or the advantage of that was that he had to live like the locals. He lived like the people he was ministering to. He didn't have, you know, a nice missionary compound that he could retreat to, like some of the more elite missionary groups. Um, so he was there. And then as the U.S. got involved in the war and tensions continued to increase, he had been ministering near the front lines between the Japanese and the Chinese. And so he would sort of try to try to stay back a little bit. Um, but this was the time in 1942 then that James Doolittle organized what we now know as the Doolittle Raid, where they ran this bombing mission off of U.S. aircraft carriers, dropped bombs on Tokyo, and then flew because the planes were too big to land on the aircraft carriers. They flew as far as they could west and then basically bailed out. And so they were bailing out um, near the, the front lines in China. And so Birch ends up finding out that there are some Americans hiding in a boat um, on this river that he's, he's stopped for lunch at this cafe. And so he goes down to see who they are. And actually it was James Doolittle and his own crew that were there. And so Birch helped them navigate their way back to the American, the closest American base, kind of through enemy lines to avoid detection from the Japanese who certainly knew the American pilots were in the region and were looking for him. And that's what was kind of Birch's first introduction to the U.S. Army. Um, and they wanted to recruit him, and he also wanted one of the jobs. So He was a real can-do person, I tell you, reading about him. Nothing stopped him. It didn't seem like anything would stop him from both helping, the well, first preaching and ministering, uh, but then also helping the United States. I want you to talk briefly about uh, one of the other fascinating figures, Rabbi Nelson Gluck, uh, which apparently, so he was an employee of the OSS during the war, and also uh, the OSS guarded that as very, very closely, one of the most closely guarded secrets you write. Uh, so tell us who he was and what he did during the war. Yeah, so Nelson Gluck, I, it, 
the spelling and the pronunciation don't line up, but I guess he, he said it glick is my understanding. Um, was a Jewish rabbi, was part of the um, more liberal Jewish tradition in the United States. And he also was an archeologist. And so he was eager and, and had an opportunity to go to Jerusalem as an archeologist to work on some important digs, kind of exploring Near Eastern artifacts, looking for um, trying to solve kind of biblical mysteries, which was a, you know, the 1910s, 20s and 30s was kind of the heyday of, of Americans going over to the Middle East doing this kind of stuff. Um, and he was very successful. And so in 1944, in the middle of the war, he actually has the cover story in National Geographic where he thinks he's located these hidden mines that were the basis for the, the gold and the other um, raw materials that created King Solomon's mine in the Old Testament. And so, or King Solomon's temple in the Old Testament. So he was there officially as an archeologist um, and again, continuing to act as a rabbi, but he was also secretly working for the OSS. And so because he was such a public figure as a you know well-respected archeologist publishing articles in National Geographic, the OSS was really worried about him getting outed as a spy. And so um, many, many, many of the documents that, well, just about all the documents have a code name. He uses a different name, actually, I guess it's a pseudonym um, to refer to him. And it was only probably a couple of years into my research that I actually found a document that really explained that, um, I can't remember what the pseudonym is, but whatever the pseudonym was, was Nelson Glick. And then suddenly it started to make sense. And then I went and got Nelson Glick's papers, which were at, um, Hebrew Union University in Cincinnati. And so it's, it's really clear at that point that, you know, there's no, no mistaking that these two people are the same person. But in the 40s, very few people in the OSS knew who this kind of mysterious source was on the ground in Jerusalem. And what are some of the things that he did for well, the OSS? Since, yeah, since the war, um, you know, never really gets to Jerusalem, it was, it was more um, providing intelligence about what was happening in neutral territories, and also he was preparing that had the Nazis um, had more success in North Africa and then moved more directly into the Middle East into Palestine, then at that point, he claimed to be ready to go with essentially a rebel army. Um, he had the weapons and he had the people kind of on standby so that they would um, do what they could to try to, to join the fight against the Nazis. Um, but since that never happened, for him, it was really more about just collecting intelligence. Um, and he was also a liaison to a group called the Jewish Agency, which was also based in Jerusalem, um, which was a Jewish spy. Well, they did a lot of things, but spying was one of them. But because they had so many contacts throughout Eastern and Western Europe, um, mostly um, Jews who had gone underground, they had a lot of information coming out. And so they would share it with Glick and then Glick would share it with the OSS. Did you ever find that Glick uh, thought deeply about this dilemma between serving the United States and his, you know, Jewish faith? Yeah, not, not that I saw. And one of the reasons he's not one of my main four was because there wasn't as extensive a paper, paper trail in the archives. The, okay. the four I chose, I chose because they left diaries and or pretty extensive detailed letters. Right. So you can get a sense of what they're thinking and feeling. Um, with Glick, I know what he was doing on the operational side from the OSS documents. I don't have as much on his personal what he was thinking or feeling about it. Okay, fair enough. We are talking with Dr. Matthew Sutton about his book, Double Crossed, The Missionaries Who Spied for the United States During the Second World War. 
Dr. Sutton is the Barry Family Distinguished Professor in the Liberal Arts in the Department of History at Washington State University. Matt, can you explain the difference in outlook on the war between the Penrose Eddie Herman group and John Birch and how that may have impacted their work as missionary spies? Yeah, that's a great question. So the OSS, because it was relatively limited in who it was recruiting, the leaders basically recruited the people they knew and they were pretty elite. OSS is sometimes jokingly referred to as oh so social. It was like a social club of a, you know elite men, business leaders, lawyers, corporate um, tycoons. And so the kinds of missionaries they initially recruited were people who went to you know, the mainline relatively elite churches, the kind of old Presbyterian churches or Episcopalian churches, congregational churches. Um, but Birch was different. And he came out of this fundamentalist tradition out of the South from Georgia. I mean, he went to Texas for a while. And there was a real difference in terms of sensibility and in terms of theology for the the liberals, they tended to believe that ultimately they could help build the kingdom of God on earth, that the world was getting better, and that as horrific as the war was, it was something that God might be using to establish his kingdom here, and that we kind of had hope in and faith in the goodness of humanity, and that, that ultimately people would and could be redeemed. Um, Birch, coming out of a fundamentalist tradition, was much more apocalyptic. He thought the world was careening um, ever more rapidly towards the great apocalypse, the Battle of Armageddon, and essentially the end of the world as we know it. And so for him, there was a sense of urgency and immediacy to what he was doing, that, that he thought we were preparing for the last battle against the Antichrist. And so for both groups, you know, they were both equally motivated to fight. They were both working towards theological ends. But one group was optimistic and hopeful and thought they were building the kingdom of God. The other group was was real pessimistic and negative and thought they were just trying to fight off the forces of the Antichrist for as long as they could. Thank you. That's uh, important, I think, to understand. You write briefly about a Belgian-Dominican missionary on the OSS payroll working on building a Catholic intelligence network for the OSS who wanted to broadcast religious propaganda into German-occupied territories to incite a religious revolution. Why did he want to do that, and how far did this get? Yeah, Father Morleone. So this was a, um, he was another fascinating character, and again, he would have been one of my main, main four if I had more of his personal feelings and thoughts on the war. But he um, was a Catholic missionary who was also a journalist who was very well plugged in in Europe, um, to Catholic networks, and then he essentially tried to stay one step ahead of Hitler as the Blitzkrieg rolled over Western Europe. He briefly goes to Latin America and then comes to New York in 41 or early 42, and immediately comes to the attention of um, Ellen Dulles and Bill Donovan. Bill Donovan was the director of the OSS. And the reason he was so important for them was because he still had his contacts in Europe. And so like Glick, he was tapping his sources of information and then sharing it with the OSS, but his sources never knew he was working for the OSS. But he also developed this plan to broadcast because he was interested in media, because he was interested in journalism. He thought one of the things that the US should be working on is sending um, radio signals into occupied parts of Europe to kind of incite a rebellion, to incite a revolution. And, the OSS did some sorts of some sorts of propaganda efforts like that, um, but as far as I know, they didn't they didn't follow Morleone's plans um, particularly. Okay, 
Uh, you uh, mentioned, Matt, uh, a missionary named Sherwood Moran who worked as an interrogator for the Department of the Navy during the war. Can you share what he did and what his legacy is? Yeah, so he was a missionary kid who was recruited because he spoke spoke fluent Japanese. Um, so he was recruited by the Marines in as an interrogator to help with um, POWs that the Marines were capturing in the Pacific. And what he discovered was that the better way to get information out of POWs was essentially to befriend them and to be honest with them and to focus on convincing them that they will be serving their own people better by cooperating with the United States, that at the end, this is going to be the best thing for the Japanese. And then he was so successful in getting Japanese soldiers to talk that he then wrote a manual for the Marines on on how to do this. And he essentially disappears um, after the war in terms of you know, how people thought of him or remembered him. They just, they just didn't. And then when all the controversy developed in the early 2000s about torture um, and and the kinds of things that were going on with the CIA, somebody rediscovered this manual that he had written in the 1940s and it began circulating again and kind of contributed to the debate about what are the best interrogation tactics? Like how, how do we get our enemies to tell us what we want to know? Um, because he, he was a model of sort of a more humane way to do it. Um, and I, I encountered his story, actually not directly in the archives. It was from David Hollinger's book, um, I'm blanking on the title of it, but it's an amazing, wonderful book on missionaries um, in the post-war period. Oh, really? Okay. Thank you for that. Um, William Eddy helped out quite a bit with the meeting between FDR and Saudi Arabia's King Abdul Aziz uh, towards the end of World War II. Can you tell us more about this and give it some context? And I want to quote something you wrote about how the king described the flowering relationship between his kingdom and the United States, because I think obviously this relationship is super important and it sort of began there, right? With Eddie helping. Uh, here's, what, here's what the king said, quote, we Muslims have the one true faith, but Allah gave you the iron, which is inanimate, amoral, neither prohibited nor mentioned in the Quran. We will use your iron, but leave our faith alone, close quote. So please give us some context about, about this meeting and, and what Eddie did. Yeah, so Eddie um, you know, serves with the OSS, helps orchestrate Operation Torch, and then he does some more intelligence work for the Mediterranean. And then the State Department decides that they, wanna, they want him, that they want to kind of steal him from the OSS and make him the diplomatic liaison to Saudi Arabia. And this is happening at the same time the State Department and FDR are, are ever more conscious of the importance of oil and the importance of Saudi Arabia and recognizing that it's important to have good relations with um, the Saudis. And so, again, because of Eddie's background, because of his fluency with Arabic, both the language and the culture and the religion, um, he was a perfect person for the job. And so he moves to Jeddah and becomes the American ambassador to, to Saudi Arabia. So simultaneous with this, Roosevelt goes over to Europe for one of the conferences with the big three, with Stalin and Churchill. Um, And then he decides that he wants to um, meet King Abdul Aziz to talk about the future of American relations. And so they have this secret meeting, happens on an American ship. 
Um, and Eddie was the one who was responsible for facilitating it, making sure it happened and really negotiating with the Saudis, um, what they could bring on the ships, how many people, um, what to expect. And he was sort of the diplomatic liaison and also just the kind of simple protocol of gift giving of, um, you know, there was a story where, where Eddie was essentially at the King's side the whole time. The King thought smoking was wrong. And so Eddie is writing to his sons about, you know, how he's you know, jittery because he hasn't had a cigarette. And he's kind of mad that Roosevelt can sneak off and have a cigarette and he can't. Um, so it's a great story. But the, if, you, if you know the story, there's these famous pictures of FDR and Abdulaziz on the ship. And Eddie's always in the pictures, but it's almost always the back of his head that's in the pictures in, um, because he's kind of sitting on the ground looking towards the two of them. And there's some great correspondence with his family making fun of him and teasing him that this was kind of his moment of fame, his moment in the spotlight, and all we get is the back of his head. Right. So what... So I know the 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 question of of uh, Jews coming to to Israel uh, is wrapped up in some of the stories. So there, Eddie was a Christian talking, uh, well, helping F, helping the United States communicate with Saudi Arabia regarding oil. And there's the question of the Holocaust and worry about Jews coming to Palestine. Can you tell us a little bit about? that story and what Eddie, you know, I guess that story and, and how Eddie participated in that and saw some of that. Yeah. So the, you know, the history of American government agencies at this time is, is not good when it comes to issues of Jewish freedoms and Jewish rights. Um, there's lots of anti-Semitism in the state department. There was tons of anti-Semitism in the OSS in the Jews who worked for the OSS, people like Nelson Glick knew it, they recognized it, they were frustrated by it, they would push back, they would challenge it, they would call it out, um, but it didn't change the fact that there was there was a lot of anti-Semitism. And um, at the time, so there's, there's just kind of generic inherent anti-Semitism. Separate from that, um, the State Department believed that its vested interest was in Saudi Arabia and in Iran, perhaps, um, maybe Iraq, in the Gulf states and not in Palestine, that they, they just didn't care that much about Palestine because Palestine didn't seem to have many of the oil reserves that they were most interested in. And so the, the question of Zionism for the American State Department really was not, wasn't that important. I mean, they, they wanted the oil, they didn't care about a Jewish homeland. And most of the OSS leaders felt the same way. So for Eddie, for Penrose, um, they were interested in finding ways to work with Muslims, with Arabs, and the more they could do to allay the Arabs' fears of a Jewish homeland, they, they would do it. I found it fascinating that FDR, I don't know if he asked the king about what to do with the Jews in Germany, uh, but the, the king, I think he did ask the king, and the king told him, well, the Jews should stay there. Um, they shouldn't come to the Middle East. Uh, what, I forget his reasoning. It was like, well, they, you know, Germans lost the war, so they need to take care of that problem. Do you remember? Exactly. Do you yeah, remember that interchange? The, that you hold the Germans responsible. That we should carve out Jewish territory in Germany, sort of punish the Germans for what they did. Right. To carve out a Jewish territory in Palestine didn't make any sense, according to Abdulaziz. And FDR, always the master politician was really talking out of both sides of his, of his mouth through all of this. I mean, he would, he would tell the Saudis what they wanted to hear, but then he would come back to the U.S. and tell Jewish advocacy groups what they wanted to hear. Um, and that became one of the, you know, one of the 
the issues when he died was there was a lot of debate as to what he actually wanted or what he truly believed, especially when Truman goes ahead and recognizes the state of Israel. Yeah, right. Fascinating stuff. Uh, tell us a little bit about Herman Stewart. He was a fascinating figure. Can you tell us a little bit about what he did uh, before the war there in Germany and then as it started? He was interned, I, I believe, if I remember correctly, at the beginning of the war. Uh, give us a little sense of what, what his role was. Yeah, so Stuart Herman was a fascinating guy. So he, you know, he gets there, as I mentioned, to in 1935 in Berlin, serves as the pastor. And the church itself was, an, again, another missionary organization, but its purpose was to minister to English-speaking people in Berlin, which was mostly people working for Hollywood studios, working for major corporations, or working for major airlines. And they were they were kind of equal numbers of Americans and Brits. And, and so that immediately dropped him into a very elite society because obviously the only Americans in Berlin, you know, in the 1930s are, are people who were there for big business reasons. And so it also meant that he immediately had access to the embassy. And so he was close with the diplomats, with the ambassador. And so that just put him at the center of kind of elite life in the city of Berlin through this whole period. Um, but as things are continuing to evolve and um, sort of degrade in Berlin, more and more Jews as well as persecuted Christians begin reaching out to him. And he makes a calculated decision, which is that he is there to minister to Americans and Brits, and he is not going to get involved in internal German politics. And so, you know, in retrospect, he's easy to judge that he could have done more, um, but he was also in a situation where he didn't know the, the Holocaust was going to unfold. He didn't know how bad things were going to get. And so he chose mostly to disengage from kind of what was happening around him. That said, um, as there was a growing religious split in Germany among the Protestants between kind of the official church that was willing to cooperate with Hitler and the confessing church that was rebelling and challenging and calling for their own independence from the Nazi regime, he, he was plugged in with the confessing church network. And so that's what helped him, you know, after the war begins in 39, but the U.S. is not in it. Um, he's able to do what he can to support the confessing church and to kind of share information back in the United States with what was happening. Um, and that's also what made him so valuable for the OSS was he had all these connections um, once the U.S. does get into the war. Can, thank you for that. Um, can you tell us about John Birch's death? the controversy surrounding it and what his name became for many Americans. Yeah. So he, um, the war ended, the Japanese surrendered, um, but Birch was still working for the OSS and he was probably exhausted. He hadn't taken a break, um, hadn't taken any leave and was asked to go on another mission with a small number of soldiers to retrieve, well, it's not entirely clear, but it was probably to retrieve some documents that the Americans were afraid the Japanese would destroy as they were retreating. Um, and so as he's doing this, he's making his way north. He encountered a few different groups of Chinese communists. And at the time, of course, the Chinese were split between the nationalists and the communists. And, you know, both sides were fighting the Japanese, both sides were working with the Americans. But there were tensions. And as the war began to wrap up, the tensions became even greater. And so Birch comes across this group of communist rebels. Um, they stop him. He explains what he's doing, why he's doing it, and basically tells them he's going to pass. 
and they say no they take his gun and then they end up shooting and killing him um as well as the shoot they didn't end up killing but killing the guy that was with him and there was a lot of debate as to what really happened in the sense that um it didn't make sense for them to kill john birch like you you've just won the war pissing off the Americans is not a smart strategic thing. So it may have just been kind of one rogue general or who just didn't know what he was doing or wasn't thinking about the consequences of his actions. But obviously the Americans were pissed um, and they met almost immediately. They already had an appointment scheduled with, um, with Mao and the communist leader. And they, they told him what had happened and how furious they were. And what they ended up doing, the Americans ended up doing was basically covering it up because they recognized it was important as the war ended to maintain our alliance with the Chinese, especially as the Soviet threat was growing and the Chinese threat, the communist threat was growing in China. And so they didn't want to, you know, provoke American anger at the Chinese communists at the time. So they lied to Birch's family. They said he'd been killed in an accident. Um, they really sort of covered up what happened. And it was only many years later that the records were declassified and that we found out that he'd actually been ex executed. And, um, and it, I mean, his body was brutalized. The, the people who killed him didn't want him to be identifiable. You know, so they took a knife to his face and did lots of things to, to try and um, cover up the evidence of what they had done. So if we jump forward to the mid fifties, after the communists have won control of China, there's a strong, you know, Cold War anti-communist movement in the United States. And one of the leaders of this is a guy named Robert Welch. And he believes that there are communists in the State Department and that the U.S. is not do doing enough to stop the growth of communism. And so he organizes a group to try to fight and expose American communism called the John Birch Society. And he named it after John Birch because his belief or his claim was that if Americans had known in 1945 that the communists had killed John Birch, they would have taken the communist threat more seriously and we would have never lost China to the communists and the Cold War would have unfolded differently. So that's that's how he became the inspiration for this far right kind of paranoid communist conspiracy movement, even though he had been dead for 10 years by the time it was formed. If I remember correctly, it seemed like the way you wrote it, that he, John Birch, on this trip, this last mission, angered some of these soldiers he came across because he was, he was so strident anti-communist and in fact his traveling partners told him to tone it down that his rhetoric was going to get them in trouble is that is that an accurate reading of, of the story yeah that seems to be what happened yeah he was um again he was tired some people have suggested maybe he was suffering from ptsd but you know he was certainly exhausted no matter what and yeah he just was he had no tolerance or patience for these local communists telling him what they what he could or couldn't do. And, and so, yeah, he called them bandits, which was a term of insult at the time, um, you know, basically told him he wasn't going to cooperate. And so, yeah, so in some ways he, you know, rather than de-escalating the confrontation, he probably escalated the, the tension. Right. The end of your book, you talk a lot about you know, what happened at, you know, post-World War II and sort of the, the missionary religious influence as the OSS became the CIA. So you brought it up to our time. So here's what you wrote. Unbeknownst to the American people, at the end of the war, leaders of the OSS, then the CIA, recommended that American intelligence agencies hire American missionaries and other religious activists 
for clandestine work, close quote. Can you tell us how this played out in the decades after World War II? Yeah, and that in some ways that's the million dollar question we don't really know because so many of the CIA records are still classified, but it's clear that a number of the folks working for the OSS continued on to the CIA. Stephen Penrose did, Bill Eddy did. Um, Herman did, um, consulted with the CIA. Um, Birch was asked if he would want to stay on to continue doing intelligence, but obviously since he died, he did not. Um, and then there are hints in the 50s and 60s in a couple of kind of areas where we do have some clear declassified documents of the way that the CIA was continuing to use missionaries. But where this stuff all came to a head was with the church committee hearings on the CIA in the mid-1970s, which was a major congressional investigation to kind of uncover what the CIA had been doing to sort of expose some wrongdoing. And that's where we learned that at that point, the CIA still had a couple dozen missionaries on their payroll. They acknowledged this to the church committee. And that got all the missionary organizations really fired up because obviously missionary work is dangerous no matter what. And if the people you're ministering to think you might be working for the CIA, it's going to be super dangerous. And so missionary agencies denounced this. And then um, there was a lot of pressure coming from the Senate to try to force the CIA to change its policy. Um, when George Herbert Walker Bush became the director of the CIA in the late 70s, his first act was to say that the CIA would stop recruiting missionaries. Um, but then we discovered in the mid-90s and again in the early 2000s that, that that declaration by Bush was never binding that essentially they would essentially what he was saying is we'll try not to use missionaries but we reserve the right to use them in a national emergency and of course they're the ones who get to define what a national emergency is and so it's clear up the most recent materials we have are from 2013 the cia policy manual and at that point they still say they reserve the right to hire missionaries for particular jobs when necessary and so you know so again it's probably not very widespread or not, well i'm sure it's not widespread but it may be that the CIA is still using a few missionaries on occasion for information in foreign locations. Thank you for bringing us up to current day, but let me just step back and have you share with us uh, what you learned from any of these actors about their recollections of their activities in the war as they were older and they looked back at what they did as religious activists and missionaries for the OSS there were some poignant words that Eddie used to describe um, sort of sometimes how he felt. Can you give us a sense uh, of, of that before we close? Yeah, and I think there's there's sort of two ways that this struck me. One was just the, the process of the research. Um, part of why I chose the characters I did is there was good operational material in the National Archives with the OSS, so I could see kind of what they were doing. But for the main four, as I mentioned earlier, they all have private collections of papers scattered across the country, diaries or letters. Um, and so by reading those, they're never talking in their diaries or their letters about their operational activities, right? That stuff's all classified, but everything is dated. And so you can triangulate, you know, a letter home where John Birch is saying, you're not gonna hear from me for the next two months. I'm really exhausted, I'm really worried, but I think I'll be okay. And then you see the OSS records where you find out, oh, because he's going into the countryside, he's sneaking behind Japanese lines, he's finding new targets for the American Air Force to bomb. And so you can put these things together and get a sense of the kind of 
tensions in these people's lives and the, the struggles they were experiencing. And so then we also see that after the war as well, um, to some extent. So Stephen Penrose talked very briefly about regretting some of the choices he had to make, um, and especially kind of the guilt he felt for people that worked under him who had been killed during the war. He took, he took responsibility for that. Um, Herman didn't reflect much on the war at all. And one of the fun things about studying Herman was that his sons, his adult sons, have his dad's, have their dad's diaries and letters. And so those weren't something I got out of an archive. Those were something I got out of, you know, on the kitchen table of Herman's sons. And they, they knew very little about what their dad had done during the war because he didn't talk about it. And so, so I was able to share with them what I had learned from the OSS archives. And then they shared with me their dad's mm. stuff. But it was clear that, that Stuart Herman also regretted some of the decisions he had had to make, but he believed he was doing the right thing. But the... The most explicit one was Eddie, who in the 1960s began working on a memoir that he never finished. And he said that missionaries who spied deserved to go to hell when they died for all the lying, deceiving, and killing that they had done during the war. And then he said, um, but would I do it again? He said, yes, it had to be done, but that that doesn't help me to sleep any better at night. And so there was this real sense that, that he felt like he had acted right, but that it tormented his soul that this was just something that, that he could never forget. Well, that's, that's hard to, hard to hear. Uh, Matt, before we close, is there anything else you want to share with us from your research? Yeah, no, I think that's mostly it. The, the questions were great. It was just, it was really a fun, fun book to get into the lives of these, of these folks. And, you know, a lot of it was detective work to kind of figure out what they were doing and who they were and, and, you know, dealing with classified sources and figuring out the pseudonyms. Um, so it's really kind of a fun, fun puzzle. And I hope, um, I hope people find it as entertaining to read as it was for me to write. Well, thank you for all your work to go into it. We have been talking with Dr. Matthew Sutton about his book, Double Crossed, The Missionaries Who Spied for the United States During the Second World War. Dr. Sutton is the Barry Family Distinguished Professor in the Liberal Arts in the Department of History at Washington State University. He teaches courses in 20th century United States history, cultural history, and religious history. I hope that all of us have learned a little bit more about what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, and as a result, appreciate a little bit more the value of this idea of religious freedom as a governing principle to America fulfilling her purposes in the world. Thank you, Matt, for being with us. It's been very enlightening, and I hope you've enjoyed the time with us as well. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. You bet. The podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, is a project of the National Museum of American Religion. Episodes are released each Monday starting October 19, 2020, through the end of the year on Podbean under Story of American Religion, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify.